Laser Squad, let's get tactical. It's Ars Sinclair, episode 87. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Ars Sinclair. I'm John. And I'm Aaron. Today, Aaron, we're going to be talking about Laser Squad. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh, Aaron, uh, in lieu of our usual ridiculous banter, I thought mm. we would forego that on this particular occasion because at the end of the show today, we are going to be remembering a, uh, a major loss in the Spectrum community this week. Uh, Oliver Frey has passed away, and uh, several members of our Discord community have wrote some, some moving uh, eulogies to him. And so we are going to uh, take the back end of this show and uh, devote it to to his legacy. So, Aaron, what do you say we jump right in to Laser Squad? I think that's a good idea. Let's kick it off here, Boat. Bam, Laser Squad. That's, a, first of all, an awesome beat right there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, before we get into the game proper... Uh, this is our second go around with Laser Squad on a different uh, computer this time around because we looked at this on the on the Amiga. Of course, this is your your home base uh, for Laser Squad. So I was actually kind of interested to see how this uh, how this would play, and we'll get into that. But uh, uh, the uh, game, of course, is Laser Squad, released on the ZX in 1988, uh, published by Target Games Limited. Uh, they produced, amongst the games they produced were Lords of Chaos, uh, the Rebel Stars. Uh, this was famously uh, created by Julian uh, Gollop. Uh, uh, he, of course, produced my favorite all-time game on the Speccy, uh, which was Chaos yeah. and My Son. And we still play that to this day. We love that game. Oh my god, it's so good. He also was responsible for Lords of Chaos, which was like the sequel. Uh, a game called Battle Cars, Nebula, and the Rebel Stars series. Uh, also, just a little tidbit here. Uh, when they were, you know, of course, this uh, got ported to a bunch of different systems. And uh, Julian's brother did the C64 version. I found that on an interview. Hmm, uh, interesting. So that's kind of neat. We're going to look at that a little bit later. Uh, this was worked on by several folks, uh, aside from Julian. You had Mike Stockwell. Uh, he also worked on a game called Dustman and Wild West Heroes. A fellow named Mark Potent, who worked on Clax, because it's the 90s boat. Mm -hmm. You know what that means. It's the time and, for Clax. And Tubin. So there's a two. I love both those. Well, I don't love Clax, but I love Tubin. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, lastly, Ian Terry, who worked on the Rebel Star 2 uh, game. Uh, this, of course, uh, was uh, a game that was very popular, and so it got a lot of ports, uh, including, of course, the Amiga version, which we played a while back. Uh, the Amstrad got a port, Atari ST, the BBC Micro, C64, and the C or the Commodore Plus Four uh, it got a port, but it was an unofficial port, and the MSX also, and uh, let's not forget a DOS uh, port in there. Uh, so and and by the way, uh, when I asked about the DOS port, Julian was not overly impressed with that particular port. I think Crystallis did that one. It didn't mm. get over, and I've heard a lot of things about the old uh, DOS port that weren't real positive. Well, Crystallis hasn't exactly always done stellar work. Either. I knew you were going to bury him. Yeah. <laughs> it was since I said their name, he's going to bury mm. him. Um, the uh, uh, the game is uh, will run on the forty eight K. And the uh, uh, 
Spectrum version was lucky enough to get the expansion, uh, Laser Squad expansion kit. Because you'll recall they, they announced it for the Amiga version, but it was never released. Uh, so uh, that's something that we can hang our hats on here. Um, Laser Squad is your know, is the natural progression. And we talked about this a little bit in, the, in our previous look. This is sort of the natural progression of the formula that Julian sort of cooked up in chaos. Uh, where, where you had this mass, uh, sort of mass one-on-one -on -one combat that involved basically sending in your flunkies to do some battling. Laser Squad uh, has you in control of uh, squads of men uh, that go, that you assign uh, you s assign different uh, equipment to, and you also pick the guys you want, and then you literally deploy them down into a battlefield, and you match wits against your opponent. Uh, this is a one-to-two player joint boat, and so this gives you the ability to play against the computer or play against your buddy. I will say, I I think I would probably like to try this in two-player mode, and so me and the boy, made, this one may be our, on our list to try out uh, the next time around. Uh, I looked at some ads for this, uh, just to give people some basis for what you're up to here, uh, and according to the, one of their big ads, the game features include eight-directional scrolling, which that was a big deal at the time, one or two players, uh, individual combat arenas. Uh, you also uh, they this was they build the eight directional facing of units. That's a that's a funny thing to build. Uh, range combat, uh, strategic scanning, uh, joystick or keyboard. You can carry objects. It also uh, touted that there would be expansions to follow. The game came with three scenarios, and they were right. They did actually end up uh, sending out uh, some additional expansions. So with all that said, boat. Uh, what you know, having played this a few times now, how did you how did this shape up when you booted it up and looked at what was on offer on the main screen there? Well, I want to talk a little bit before I get into my my personal thoughts on this game about All sort right. of what the, what this type of game represented to Spectrum users when it was released. Um, you know, the great promise of home computing. There were many great promises of home computing. Your kids would become geniuses. Uh, you'd be able to order your dinner and uh, watch the news and do <laughs> whatever you wanted promise. to your computer. You order your dinner. <laughs> but, you know, from a gaming perspective, um, you know, there were, there were all kind. you know, you can, be a, you can be a spaceman, you can be a soldier. But the big thing, at least in my mind, growing up as a gamer, was that I'd always have somebody to play with. Because uh, by the time that I was a youngster... Uh, the games had AI. I know the very earliest, you know, games that were sort of top-down experiences like this, you had to have that second player, like Checkers for the Atari 2600 or something like that. Um, but this was a chance, the, you know, that the promise of, of these type of games were for people that were into pen and paper, Avalon Hill type, uh, you know, tactical war games, to have a digital version where they'd always be able to have an opponent. And you can't undersell that as a feature because that was something that was truly mind-blowing at the time, that AI had progressed to the, the point where you could have a tactical war game simulation uh, with a computer-controlled opponent that wasn't just totally dominating or wasn't, wasn't a pushover. I mean, I think that that's a pretty big deal. Don't you agree? You know, listen, I'm glad you, as usual, Boat, you're thinking outside the box and you're dead on. Having Being an old guy myself, I can tell you, you know, I'm an old role player from way back. I got into D&D &D stuff pretty early on. 
but there was a there's a natural progression to Dungeons and Dragons that came from war gaming, uh, uh, troop games, big battles, uh, and moving squads around a map with miniatures, miniature war gaming, and uh, uh, which that of course birthed your fantasy role playing among other things. But that was always a big deal. You mentioned Avalon Hill, and that's absolutely straight up uh, money. They were a, a a big player in that in that area. And, and this game is sort of, you're, you're dead on when you say this is sort of what scratches that itch. Uh, this, I mean, this is clearly a popular game. And one of the reasons it's so popular is it laid down on your simple uh, ZX and other computers the ability to simulate a, a, a miniature war game style uh, scenario, multiple scenarios, and do it with some grace and uh, charm. It's not, it's, you know, you could, there's some, we, you know, there's a text-based uh, air bombing game that we looked at. I remember when I talked to Flack about it. That was sort of a tactical uh, uh, attempt from a computer program. And that's the kind of stuff you would have expected back in the day. But here you have something in, in vivid color uh, that lets you command troops, move them around a map, and even fight your buddy or the computer. Uh, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That was a big selling point for a game like this. This is one of those things that gets lost if you if you don't think about the era that it took place in, you know, uh, because that's really key. So v very well seen, Boat. I I I think that's nasty. That's real good. Now, with all that said, uh, this comes up. It, it's pretty straightforward menu wise, uh, and it gets you into action. What did you think of the setup in this? And having played the Amiga version, uh, what did you think of, of of the options and the controls versus what we played in the past? Well, you know, obviously, when you look at this interface, the first thing that comes to mind is this is going to be a mouse-controlled game. Of course, we're talking about the ZX Spectrum here, so mouse-controlled yeah. games were not really on the menu. But this looks as if it were designed to be a mouse-controlled game. You've got a cursor that you're moving around on the screen. Uh, they accomplish all that with the use of the joystick. I guess you could use the keyboard, too, but I used the joystick when I played. I've got to say, um, I didn't have real high hopes, and I guess I should have because... well. I don't know. I should or I, and I shouldn't. I will say that I agree with you. Chaos is a great game, but I think that the joystick interface in Chaos leaves a little bit to be desired in terms I of agree. its usability. Yeah, uh, they, this, the, the way he sets selecting stuff, whatever, it's not the easiest or most intelligent way to do it. There's no doubt. Right, right. Now, this game, on the other hand, I found it to be extremely intuitive to control with the joystick. I was able to to do pretty much whatever I wanted to do right off the bat. Um, I didn't have any trouble at all, uh, you know, moving around the map. The cursor doesn't move too slow or too quick. Uh, I I really thought that the uh, the interface in this was easy to understand. Uh, there were a couple things like I wish that you you could you would auto equip weapons. Sometimes it, it was kind of a drag to have to go in there and equip your weapon with each guy. Um, yeah. But uh, but overall, a solid A on the interface for this game. You know, it's funny because I went back and checked out our old Amigos episode on this, and because I wanted to see how after I'd played it, what if I could see any spot any major uh, you know things that I like better or worse. And I, you know, it's funny. I mentioned on the Amigos that I used uh, I used the keyboard to control it. And you chastised me. You said you should use the joystick. You screwed that up. I used the keyboard again <laughs> on, on this. <laughs> uh, and of course, this is one game. 
you know, if you're if you're foreign to using a ZX emulator on the Mister or whatever, they, their button setup was different than you would expect. So you're using the A, I think it's the A AQ and the OP, I think mm -hmm. what to, oh, to yeah. move the cursor around. You know, so you have to kind of get used to doing that. But I actually thought I thought the once again I thought once you understood what you were doing, the keyboard did a good job. But some of the same issues that I had when we played this initially, I still had because I mean it's the same game basically. And the Amiga was almost a, it's a very similar. It's I'd say it was a very lazy port over from the from the Spectrum version. It's just you have to go through and equip the guys and do all that stuff. And when you don't know what you're doing early on, you like you could screw up. You can not equip. You can accidentally not equip guys. You can mm -hmm. actually give guys the wrong stuff, and when and then once you deploy them, you've got you realize that you've you, that you've screwed up, and it gets old, you know. And I, there are some ease of um, use stuff like you mentioned that would have been welcome. Now you putting the game in uh, uh, the time the game was made into context. Some of that stuff wasn't uh, really, you know. This is such a new concept that a lot of this stuff hadn't really been created yet, or would be uh, perfected in some of the later games. But overall, I was surprised how well I got around the menus and stuff once I understand and understood how everything worked. It's it was a lot like chaos. Chaos is real confusing, but once you've done it a bunch of times, I mean, you can you'll get through it. You'll still blunder up occasionally, but you can get through it. Um, so this game is pretty straightforward. These scenarios it gives you the three basic scenarios to start off with. And then you, once you pick your weapons and you, uh, then you, and your troops, and then you basically deploy your guys. And you deploy your guys down in areas that are, that are predetermined. They, they're marked, so you know where to put them. And then once you've deployed all your characters, it's basically, uh, uh, you against the computer. You're moving your guys, uh, through. You have action points that these are, uh, these are, are everything that you do are action points. Even if you just turn in place, you're using action yeah, points. Yeah, and you again, this is this is a holdover from the old Avalon Hill games, where it's yeah. the, the exact same uh, the exact same system. Just instead of moving chits around and having to keep track of things on paper, the computer did all the hard work for you. Have you ever played any of those uh, games? Uh, like uh, you know, you're because you're a board game guy a little bit. Have you ever played any of those really uh, intense? Like war I've never games. played. I've never played any of the actual Avalon Hill games, but I yeah. have played war games like that that are yeah. just kind of newer. I would, you know, you at some point in the past, you bought for me some Avalon Hill games. I have no idea what I did with them. I might have given <laughs> them back to you. Um, but uh, I, hope, I hope you didn't throw them away, boat. I didn't As throw. You, I didn't throw them away. I might have thrown. You know, them away. Th this game I've played a lot of Mech Warrior, and there are certain aspects of this game that remind me of moving around in Mech Warrior because in Mech Warrior you have to you have to uh, turn your mech, and you've got a limited amount of, of travel points you can you can spend, and so uh, that's something you get used to. You know, when you're playing a game like this, and listen, we both know like, turn based. Uh, war simulators are not my necessarily my bag, so I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm good at these games or even even competent at them. Uh, but you've you, you have to if you're really good at these, you will use your action points in a in a very uh, um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a very efficient way. All right, because you could waste them, and when you get to a point where you need to do something and you look and you don't have enough action points, or the thing says you're out of action points, it's not a happy feeling, especially if you parked your guy. With his back to the enemy or something like that, you know, or you know you're going to get stomped. So efficient use of action points in the game is key. 
Uh, did you? How did you fare at this boat when you were going through these scenarios? I should mention before you get into it, the three initial scenarios you get are. Well, let, uh, let me talk. Let me talk a little bit about that. Okay, that go ahead. Where I was going to go. So, another thing that makes this game a stone cold classic is the fact that it's not just a death match sort of ordeal. You know, there are three scenarios. Yeah. Each one of the scenarios is completely different, and depending on which side you play as, you have different objectives. That is amazing. That is the best because this type of game can become a, kind of a slog if all you're doing is moving around a map trying to kill the other team. Okay, so the first uh, the first scenario is called the Assassins, and uh, what you have to do if you uh, and there's two you're either playing the Assassin Squad, which you're playing by default if you are playing a one player game. If you're playing a two player game, the second player plays as the Droid Squad. Uh, the assassin squad uh you have to go in and you have to assassinate one of these vips okay the droid squad your job is to protect the vip and eliminate all the assassins you only win if you eliminate all the assassin and the vip remains alive so right off the bat an interesting scenario uh, scenario two is called moon base assault uh, what you have to do here, if you're the if you're part of the laser squad, which is the default first player, uh, what you have to do is you have to destroy a certain number of laser banks. Uh, the laser, or the, I'm sorry, data banks. Uh, the data banks are worth five victory points a piece, and if you get a hundred victory points, oh, and there's something else you can destroy called an analyzer. So what you're essentially doing is you're going in and you're going all scorched earth on this base. And you, you don't really have to kill any of the, the 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 bad guys. You're just going in there trying to destroy these computer systems. Meanwhile, if you're the Omnicorp, your job is to destroy the guys that are trying to, to destroy the, the, the data system. So you've got to knock out the laser squad. And then finally, the third mission is called Rescue from the Mines. Uh, and this is a prisoner escape mission where you have to go in and you have to free some prisoners. So uh, once a prisoner is, you, you, once you free a prisoner, uh, you move him to an elevator door and then move into the elevator to escape. All three of the prisoners that you have to rescue must escape. And if you're the bad guys, uh, if you, uh, if you are, uh, if you kill at least five of the rebels, then you you win. So. I really, really appreciate the fact that this game has uh, the the amount of varied scenarios that it has. Because you wouldn't expect a game from this time period to really have a lot of thought in what you're actually doing. Or if you if they did, it would be a lot of narrative fluff with no real impact on the actual game itself. Versus in this game, each one of these little three stories is compelling enough to make you want to play it. I did try all three of these. Mm -hmm. They do, have, and they do have different feels to them. I liked, I really, I, I, I've gotten sort of obsessed with playing a multiplayer game of this because I really do think that's where the fun would be. Because I, because I think the computer is, uh, well, it's a lot better than me. Let's just put it that way. And so I would get, I would just get repeatedly pounded. I think if I was put matched up against a real human, I might have a better shot. Unless it was some like superstar, mm -hmm. you know. But I do, I do like a game that mixes it up. And you got to think that's crazy to have. Uh, three different scenarios that are that they had to build them from the ground up to support two players, which is not the easiest thing to do. Uh, and then, of course, once you flip through those, you can get into the expansion, uh, which provides a couple more. Um, so we both think the we like the concept. We like what he's did here. Now, when you get into the nitty gritty of moving your troops around uh, uh, and also getting into uh, distance combat and stuff, this can get a little tricky for me. 
in fact, this is where I really had trouble. It, the, the computer was far more efficient at picking me off uh, from range and stuff. It's all about line of sight. And I do like, it's funny, uh, going back to what you mentioned about uh, the old war games, it's all, you can almost hear someone uh, rolling a dice or something on some of these attacks. Mm -hmm, so it's, mm -hmm. There's no surefire shots. It gives you percentages, and a big part of this game, if you want to become serious, is to study all of the charts that <laughs> appear in the manual. Because yeah. you, see, you see the math, you see the dice rolls, you see the hit percentages. And uh, and you have in your to be to become great at this game, you have to weigh your odds, and so yeah. it's it's a numbers heavy experience, just like a pen and paper war game. Yeah, absolutely. And and I will say that this is a game where the documentation. This isn't just the inside of a tape cover. No, I mean this thing's got this thing's got some documentation. It goes into a lot of stuff. And listen, I'm I'm not gonna uh, claim to be King Dong at this game. I'm sure we're I've only scratched the surface of. Of what of what this game can be like when you're really good at it, but overall, uh, actually, I think both uh, in a controversial move. I think I actually enjoyed playing this more on the Spectrum than I did on the Amiga. Oh, no I, doubt, no doubt. Oh, you too. Oh, thank yeah. God. Because, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. It's it, it's because you appreciate even more what the humble Spectrum could do. Because you know the Amiga can crunch some numbers. You know, yeah. it's got the math coprocessor. So, uh, you know, the, what, having the spectrum being able to to do what it does in the speed, the speed at which the computer is able to take its turns and react and all those things, not to mention the speed of your own turns as you're moving and firing and things like that. Uh, I love playing this game on the spectrum. Plus, this is, you know, as, as you know, I'm a kickback, lean back gamer. If I have a chance to play something with a controller, I will, because I like sitting in the old recliner. Being yeah. able to drive this whole thing with the joystick made it fantastic for that. You know, it is strange that we took different control approaches, but I mean, I think this one, I, I don't really have any problem using the keyboard on this one. I didn't have any problem. And, and I, did, I did try the joystick this time. I didn't try it last time on the Amiga. It was okay, but I'd gotten so used, because I always play Chaos with the keyboard too. Mm -hmm. That could be part of it. Uh, if you are so inclined, if, if you really enjoyed Chaos, which, and I will say, now, having not played this in multiplayer, Chaos supports so many simultaneous players that it may be the ultimate multiplayer game. With that said, uh, I have a feeling that the, the depth that this would provide uh, would be really fun uh, to hook up with, with, with two, two different people. You know what I wish? Uh, I wish that this game had because um, I am a, I'm the sort of person that has a hard time keeping track of so many different teammates and what they're doing. Yes. Yes. I wish that they there was a way for them to kind of ramp you up to that and maybe give, even even sort of make the levels of difficulty even more granular where you start out and you're playing one of these scenarios and you only have control over one guy and the rest of your guys are computer controlled and you just worry about what your one guy is doing and then you know you graduate to three guys and then you can do the whole team. I know that some people are ready to jump in and control the whole team from Jump Street, which is fine. But I, I really felt like it was so difficult for me to to think about both the individual movement and then the movement as a team. It, it was a little bit overwhelming at first. You know, I would get, of course, you you can scan and get like the big map mm -hmm. that comes up. You know, I kind of wish that you could, I wish the rooms, because again, there's a lot of sameness here. And it was confusing to keep track of your guys. And now, of course... Uh, 
just like in chaos, as you switch between guys, it tells you how many action points you got. So oh, you yeah. can sort of tell what you've who you've moved. Mm-hmm. But it still would be nice to if to really differentiate them. Of course, difficult. It's a difficult ask. Uh, given what you've got to work with here and given the way it looks. But that would have been nice. Or even I would have liked if the game had sectioned off some of the different areas in it with like different uh, different shape coloring or even like a name or something. I don't mean we don't have to have like name drews everywhere, but just to keep track of where you're at and where you're going was it was it that was a little overwhelming, but I don't again, chalk it up to the game. I just thought my again, shortcoming. This, this might come from the era where Having a, a a a piece of grid paper whenever you turned on your spectrum right next to you was almost a given because you know in almost every spectrum game that we play there is an element of mapping involved and that could have been part of the quote unquote fun of the game is is mapping out these levels on the grid paper as well as seeing them on the screen. It's quick. It's funny how quickly that became not fun. And I can tell you, I can pinpoint I can pinpoint when it happened. It was the exact time that I'd played enough rogue. I'm like, all right, I'm not done with this. Mm-hmm. Get it out. Um, I took a look at uh, uh, a another version of this. I thought we'd talk about it. And since, of course, since it was programmed by Julian's brother, it makes it more interesting. But that was the uh, Commodore 64 version. Which, uh, guess what? They look fairly similar. And much like the, I don't, I think almost all these look pretty much, uh, pretty similar. There's a little more. Would you say there's more graphical flourish? What do you think when you look at these? I think C64 version looks like butt. Oh really? Yeah. You hate well, the C64 butt. Well, like look at me. I, I'll, I'll say it till they die. It looks like a purplish green slime is smeared all over the screen of the C64. Everything has this sort of washed out, slightly sickly look to it, and it can't compare to the bright sharpness of the display of the ZX Spectrum. I will say the the, the Spectrum uses its palette. In a very uh, pleasing way on this on this game, but I don't think the C sixty four version looks okay. It C sixty four version reminds me a little bit more of like almost like the the uh, graphics of like an Ultima or something. It's that's yeah. got that kind of look to it. Yeah. But I think I you know. Now I will say I, I didn't get a chance to try the C sixty four. Did you have a go at it? No, but I would wager that the the AI subroutines and everything like that. If if this was ported by Julian's brother, he probably had access to all that stuff. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I, I would say you're right. Um, I looked at some reviews on this boat uh, before we get to the uh, our uh, listener reviews. Uh, this game was highly praised, uh, boat. Uh, the average magazine score rating for this was uh, 89%. And uh, this won several awards, including the uh, CNVG uh, uh, reward for a hit and the Your Sinclair Mega Game uh, Award. Uh, and looking over the magazines, uh, your Sinclair gives us a 9 out of 10. Uh, the Games Machine, 84%. Sinclair User, 89. Uh, Crash gave this an 89. And uh, Computers and Video Games gave this a 97. They were really up in it. So this was a well-received game. But how how did it play with our listeners, Boat? Oh, we had... Uh, there there was some action on the old... Uh, <laughs> did we get some action? <laughs> we got some action on the old uh, our Sinclair uh, channel on our Discord server. Uh, We're going to start things off with Jed Byrne. He says, There was no other game quite like it back in the 80s, and it still plays well today once you figure it out. The game allows complex tactics, especially with opportunity fire. After the basics are mastered, there's still much to find. 
grenades and plant pots, setting up chain reactions and searching an enemy body to find their security pass and access the computer system are just a few of the discoveries waiting to reward those that persevere. Then playing against another human takes it to a whole new level. It's hard to believe that this was just an early step in a game style that Julian Gallup is still developing. I have Phoenix Point, but I enjoy playing this more. Steve Smith writes, One of my fondest memories of playing on my Specky was an eight-hour Laser Squad session with a friend. I never played any other game for such a long period, which shows how good it is and how much replay value it has. No two games are ever the same, and the breadth of tactics you can use is infinite. Obviously, like most games of this type, playing against a human opponent is really where it's at, and in my opinion, this was the, the best turn-based strategy game on the Spectrum, and its only competition was other Gollop games. It looks really good and plays even better. 10 out of 10. Wow. And Mitsuyama writes, My memory is very hazy about this, but I think this was the first turn-based strategy game I played. Not the first played, it was certainly the first one that caught my interest and I ended up playing it a lot. I remember finding it rather impenetrable at first, but once I got into it, it became a favorite, at least until the next best thing came along. I liked being able to take a slow, methodical appro approach to completing the missions, making sure I kept the units together, covering each other. It wasn't long after I got this game that I moved on to the Amiga, and I remember feeling disappointed with the Amiga version, probably because I expected more than a reskinned 8-bit game. Get ready for mm -hmm. lots of disappointments, Misiyama. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Playing it again today, I don't think it's aged very well, but a lot of this is related to the fact that it's restricted to joystick or keyboard controls. Although Gollop did a good job with these restrictions, it's still more natural to play with these types of games with a mouse. However, this remains a Spectrum Classic, 9 out of 10. So the mm. Discord community, they like it. Yeah, I, and uh, like I said, it is, is this my type of game? Not necessarily, but it's it's got enough in common with the game I absolutely love. Because really, in all honesty, Chaos isn't my type of game either. It just grew on me. And this one, it's funny, when we picked this, when this came up, when the Select Committee picked it, I was like, oh man. But as I got back into it, I actually enjoyed it, not just because I was on the spec, just because I knew a little bit more about it than the first time. I enjoyed it a lot more than I did when we played it on the Amigos. Uh, and, of course, I do think the Spectrum really is the system to run a game like this. I mean, this looks like a Spectrum game. It plays like a Spectrum game. It really is a Spectrum game, and I think that's what limited its appeal on the Amiga, because it was a Spectrum game on the Amiga. If you're going to play a Spectrum game, just play it on the Spectrum boat. Right, right. And uh, so that is really... All that needs to be said about Laser Squad. All right, Aaron, we're going to end today's show with uh, sharing some reminiscences from our Discord community about uh, Oliver Frey and what he's meant to the uh, the Spectrum community uh, over the years. Of course, he uh, he's a Swiss-born, uh, mostly uh, UK uh, resident. I think he moved back to the UK in the 70s started working in the magazine industry and quickly found an audience with his incredibly evocative covers for both Crash Magazine and Zap64. If you're watching the YouTube version of this video, we want to give a special shout out and thank you to Paul, aka Hermski, for allowing us to use some of these images that he's put together uh, for uh, as we read these reminiscences. Uh, Paul is the uh, he's the chairman of the Our Sinclair Game Selection Committee, and he also has a very great YouTube channel called Back to 8-Bit with Hermski. So I'm just going to dive uh, right into these, Aaron. Um, we'll start with Paul. Paul says, 
The sad news of Oliver's passing has totally rocked the community here in the UK. His artwork was and still is just on another level, taking you completely into another world. The perfect escapism with so many stories to be told with the art. I'm fortunate enough to have acquired a fair few personally signed limited edition prints from Roger and Oliver, along with a signed copy of his book, The Fantasy Art of Oliver Frey. One of my favorite books in my retro collection, a book for anyone to go back to after a bad day in the office to lift your spirits. For decades, anyone who ever asked me who my favorite artist was, Ollie was always my answer. Crash Magazine was probably, for me, the first home computer magazine to be able to fully communicate and engage with its younger audience, something other magazines just couldn't do. Same with Oliver's artwork, pushing boundaries and our imagination to the next level and beyond. Even in today's world, walking into a modern newsagent, you will never see a magazine cover like Oliver's. Although back then, some covers did cause a bit of controversy with retailers. But the risks paid off, and some of the best fantasy art was born. A true legend, one that shaped, helped shape my life growing up. Benz writes, an entire generation of 80s gamers will forever think about Oliver's work when they cast their minds back to those heady days. His crash covers are as much a part of those days as the games themselves were. I used to stare at them and build stories in my mind about what was happening in the artwork, what came before, and what happened next. Perhaps the artwork was more impactful then because we were all used to having to use our imaginations when we played games. That collection of color-clashing dots was a ship or an alien, or a character. Oliver's work fed directly into that. It felt like the worlds of our imaginations coming to life. He was the perfect artist for the time, and his passing makes those days feel a, that little bit further away now. Will Brooker writes, I think the importance of Ollie's work can't be underestimated. Without those covers, Crash wouldn't have had the same impact, and the magazine culture would have never developed the way that it did. Without that magazine culture, there wouldn't have been the same sense of irreverent, celebratory community around the spectrum. If we'd only had Sinclair user as it was back in 1982, the spectrum could have retained that middle-aged hobbyist vibe for a few years, then faded away. And we wouldn't have had Zap, Amtix, and the magazines that copied Crash's approach. But even more importantly, I think Ollie showed us how to imagine the worlds the games were representing. Before him, I think games artwork was much more basic and unambitious. Ollie encouraged the idea that those simple graphics were just simple symbols of a rich fantasy universe, that the actual game was vivid and realistic, and that the graphics just hint at what they're really showing. These days, games really do look like movies, but he showed us that Spectrum graphics were meant to represent movie worlds. Apart from anything else, you can only imagine the challenges faced by a gay couple in the 1980s, a period of rampant homophobia, trying to set up a magazine for teenage boys with school kids reviewing and lots of hunky men on the covers. There's a whole history there, and I think it's actually an important story within gay British culture. Naturally, I had no idea at the time about their sexuality and that the two guys behind Crash were a couple. But looking back, they somehow worked wonders within a decade of unashamed anti-gay prejudice. Anyway, I will always remember Ollie's work for the rest of my life. I can guarantee that. He's been part of my imagination for 40 years, and I'm not going to forget him before I pass on myself.
Tinpot Gamer writes, I rarely bought Crash, as it often wasn't available or I was driven to your Sinclair and Sinclair user based on the cover tape contents. But Ollie's incredible work has still made its way firmly into my brain over the years. As said above, it really does help to fuel the imagination. Whether it's mysterious covers with things to see in reflections of eyewear, fantasy worlds brought to life, or the action shots and movement of characters charging towards the viewer, the details really did make it stand out over so many covers on the shelf. A terrible shame that such an incredibly talented artist has gone. Mr. Rocket writes, I remember every month looking forward to the, great, the latest Crash or Zap to see what cover Ollie had created. The other mags look stale and boring in comparison to the visual delights he would conjure up consistently. I doubt many artists could have matched the sheer volume and high standard of artwork he was creating then. He was a bona fide genius in his field. I must admit to having a lump in my throat as I read an issue of The Games Machine recently and came across a picture of young Ollie in his Newsfield-branded baseball cap. A great loss and the end of an era. Jigglebox writes, Not much more I can add to the comments already made. A very sad loss. Fairly recently, I bought the book of art by Ollie Frey and only then realized his involvement with the Eagle comic back in the 80s. I knew I had an annual somewhere, so I dug it out, and it was great to see his work there, too. My canvas of the first Crash cover is a fondly prized possession, as is my thumbs-up portrait, even if it is Zap64 based. Rest in peace. Z9K9 writes, With countless images of scintillating color, detail, action, and beauty, Frey added greatly to the vitality of gaming in the 80s. And finally, Jed Byrne writes, The art of Ollie Frey had a profound impact on me. No other artist was able to capture the internal worlds I visited by playing games. In addition to the covers, he filled the magazines with character and flair, such as the Ollie bugs that scuttled about the pages. None of this was necessary, but he did it anyway and lifted the publications into something magical. They sparked with imagination, igniting the reader's own imagination. So yeah, lots of uh, lots of touching tributes to to Oliver. Um, Aaron, were you aware of this guy before we started doing our shows? No, I not. And it's funny. I've I've only recently, say within the past couple years, uh, looked into him wholesale because. <clears throat> it's funny a lot of it was because i was looking at maybe grabbing some some uh, magazines and i noticed that uh, these these a lot of these crash magazines were like getting really expensive and now they've gotten more expensive and, and as i look through them it much like comics when you've got a real ripping good cover mm -hmm. the, and, and i think that's a big reason why it's because the art's so good and then once i uh started looking into it i was like man this guy's uh and listen i was a a teenage boy uh, back in those days in the 80s and this guy is he's hitting all the right buttons man his art is i mean first of all he's super duper talented obviously he was uh, a more than a good hand he was a, a, a really great artist but it, there's more to it than just having talent you've got to know what to draw and how to do it and he did 
You know, I, I, I always think back to that. I mean, I can imagine when someone saying, listen, I know this is a super famous cover, but it's one I always think of is the one where someone was like, listen, we need to, we need a cover for this issue that we're looking at golf. And this guy draws the hot chick eating the popsicle. And the only fragments of a golf game were just re reflected in the glasses. Right. I love that cover. Mm -hmm. But he's got t tons of great work. I, I know uh, I know it was a big loss uh, for a lot of the community over there. Uh, and a big loss for everyone. Uh, because, uh, you know, we've lost a very talented artist and also an icon of the era. So all you can really say is thanks for all what you did. And uh, happy trails, Oliver. Absolutely, absolutely. And with that, uh, we bring this episode of R. Sinclair to a close. Uh, we want to thank the members of Clive's Club, the group that uh, picks the games that we play every week. Mr. Rocket, Mitsuyama, Richard Goulstone, Paul Harrington, McChessers, Jed Byrne, Justin Tenbotkamer, Orkmeal, and Paul, a.k.a. Hermsky. Um, we'd also like to invite anybody that likes this show and would like to support it uh, to visit our page at patreon.com slash our Sinclair. Uh, we have a goal. If we can get to $200 a month in support, our Sinclair will morph from a monthly show to a weekly show, which would be amazing. Uh, and that leads us to our R. Sinclair roll call. These are the rest of our patrons, uh, Pajaco6502, Will Brooker, Wanderly Chesham, Stephen Wilcott, Chartel, Nathan Mills, Doug Berry, Jigglebox, David Terrace, Andrew Waite, Eric Nelson, Captain Crispy, Laurent Giroux, Mark Downey, Peter Molland, Chris Folds, Mark Durham, Pixels at Dawn, and O'Brien's Retro and Vintage. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. Um, if you'd like, if you like this format, you want to hear more, feel free to check out our other shows, Amigos, Everything Amiga, Our Sinclair, uh, which is this show, uh, The Coco Show, uh, all about the Tandy Color Computer, ARG Presents, and the Atari ST Show. Um, and of course, we can't forget about ARG Presents, where you and the Brent spin the wheel and make the deal. All these shows can be found on the Amigos Retro Gaming YouTube channel at, uh, at youtube.com slash Amigos Retro Gaming, or you can listen to the audio versions at anchor.fm slash Amigos Podcast. Aaron, what is on the docket for the next episode of Our Sinclair? Let's find out, shall we? Oh, man, he's back. Fast food. He's back. The egg <laughs> is back. That's right. So this is a different kind of dizzy game. I don't know if this is one of those things like, you know, you know how Mario was in like all of the Nintendo games and when, mm. when the Nintendo first came out, but they never really called yeah. him Mario. I yeah. wonder if this is a canonical dizzy game or if this is just like this is an egg a representative of an egg shaped species. I've heard of this one. I think I may have even tried it, but I don't remember anything about it. So it'll be it'll be looking at it with new eyes. Yeah, so we can't wait to do that. We will see you guys next time. Until then, rewind tape. And press play.